Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800 247 3051. 800 247 3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Father, thank you. As I prepared this message for putting your hand and crowning me with the blessing of seeing the Lord Jesus in this chapter. And Lord, I pray that each person in this room today, that you would put your hand on each of their heads and you would crown them also with the blessing of seeing this, this is Christ the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so in Ruth chapter two, Ruth chapter two, and I'll start reading again at verse one. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Eli Melech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz of the kindred of Eli Melech. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto a servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that do reap, and go thou after them. Have not I charged the young man that they shall not touch thee? When thou art thirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young man have drunk. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldst take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done to thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father, thy mother, the land of thy nativity, come unto a people which thou knowest not. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Okay, now, in our study so far in Ruth, we've been following closely this remarkable woman, Ruth, because she's journeyed from her homeland there in Moab, and she's come into a strange country of Israel, and she's among a strange new people, the Jewish people, and we've been feeling with her as she's done this, all of her aloneness, all of her isolation as she set out alone to find food in this strange new world where she's a despised Moabite. And in our last study, we've been feeling with Ruth her frustration, seeing her only friend there. She has just only she has one friend, and it's just Naomi. And Naomi now has been overcome 
with sadness. And she's given in. Naomi has given in to this paralyzing depression. And up until this point, life has been very hard for Ruth. Ruth has just had to battle through. And when we look at Ruth and we say, how do we describe Ruth? One word. One word to describe Ruth up to this point. Faithfulness. Ruth has been a faithful friend to Naomi. And Ruth's faithfulness has come at a very heavy price. And from here, we're in the life of Ruth. And so we look back from this point and we would say, yes, we can see that that chapter in Ruth's life could be called the price of faithfulness. She's paid a heavy price. And for Ruth, it's been the price of faithfulness. But now the tide is going to change for Ruth. And she's about to start now a new chapter in her life. And this new chapter we can title The Reward of Faithfulness. And that's a new chapter in her life. And it starts with these words in verse 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? Go not to glean another field, neither go from thence. Abide here fast by my maidens. Just those remarkable first five words of that verse 8 in the chapter is the reward of faithfulness opening up. Then said Boaz unto Ruth. And now our focus now changes to Boaz. And as Ruth looks at Boaz, she sees in his eyes, in the eyes of Boaz, something very different that she hasn't seen in the eyes of all the other Jewish people. She sees in his eyes something that she's been looking for. And from his eyes, Ruth can tell that Boaz is now feeling her aloneness. He's feeling her isolation. He's feeling her fear as she's come into this new land, this new people. He speaks about it. You came into a strange country. And from his eyes, Ruth knows that this Jewish person is different because somehow, somewhere, this Jew has felt alone and isolated and afraid. And that's easy to understand because it's common for Jews to feel this aloneness and isolation and fear. I remember in August of 1976, when I was 15 years old, and I found myself in a co-ed boarding school of 200 students in, in Montreux, Switzerland, the end of the lake, Geneva. And I was only one of two Jews in that school of 200 Gentiles. And I remember trying to hide the fact that I was Jewish, but, you know, with a name like Cantor, it doesn't go very well. So everybody knew I was a Jew. And one day, I remember we were playing rugby. I never even heard of rugby before, but I was playing rugby. And what I remember is what I don't remember. And what I remember not remembering was who hit me. But all I remember was somehow flying through the air and feeling the slam of the goalpost on my back. That stopped me. And then I remember the blood in the urine. And then I remember the ambulance to the hospital. And I remember the doctor saying, you ruptured your kidney. Well, you know, I kind of hoped that, okay, they got it out of the system. Now it's all over. But one night as we were playing in the gym, the students beat up on me and were hitting me from the back. And they started to tear my clothes off me. And before they stripped me naked, I ran out of the gym to my room. And I never felt so alone and so isolated and so afraid before. I mean, I came from a totally Jewish world in West LA and where all my friends were Jews. You know, I went to a high school where it was real clear, you were either Jewish or Mexican, nothing else. <laughs> and we had to walk to the high school, 
those lines, these Mexican guys on both sides, and you just walk straight ahead and you didn't look one way or the other. And so that's where I came from. And so really, I mean, it was uncomfortable, but I never knew what it was really like to be hated as a Jew. I mean, Holocaust movies were just movies. But now, as a Jew at this boarding school in Montreux, and it was just 20 years after the German Holocaust had ended, and just 75 miles from the German border, I felt like Ruth. I felt like Ruth in a strange country among strange people, and I felt the hatred. And that happened almost 50 years ago. But even now, as I tell you about those feelings of the aloneness and the isolation and the fear, they're as fresh today as they were 50 years ago. And then two years after that happened to me, I met a Gentile named Cheryl, who became my wife. And when I met her, she told me that she loved the Jews. Well, from my terrifying experience in Switzerland, I told her, I don't believe anybody loves the Jews. I never told her about that experience I just telling you about now. And Boaz, he didn't attend some boarding school in Switzerland to learn about isolation and fear and um, aloneness, but he understood somehow what it meant to be terrified with the feelings of aloneness and isolation and fear. So as Boaz looked at Ruth, then Ruth found something because Ruth now had gone out from Naomi. You look carefully at verse two. It says, and Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go my daughter. There is a Hebrew word that's buried in verse two. It's translated sight. It's not the word sight. That Hebrew word clear is very clear. The Hebrew word is ayin, which is the word for I. And so the word ayin or I is the key to what Ruth was saying there, what she was saying to Naomi, what she was going to do that day. Because when we read in verse 2, the word ayin, the word I for ayin, it reads like this in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, let me now go to the field and glean ears after him in whose eyes... I shall find grace. And she said unto her, go my daughter. See, Ruth was on an eye search that day. Ruth was saying to Naomi, I'm gonna go out today and look into the eyes of people. And Ruth is saying to Naomi that she was gonna go search for those certain eyes. And she's gonna search from this person's eyes to that person's eyes till she found the eyes that she was looking for. And what eyes was she looking for? She said, eyes of grace. Eyes of hen, eyes of grace, or eyes of compassion. So Ruth set out that day looking for the eyes of compassion. And that day, Ruth looked from one set of eyes to the next set of eyes, and she said, where are these eyes of compassion? And when she found this person, she looked at his eyes, and she said, no, no, these are not the eyes of compassion. I'll move on. And so she went on all that day looking for the eyes of compassion. And then Ruth said, I found them. I found them. I found the eyes that I've been looking for. When she looked into the eyes of Boaz, she said, those are eyes of compassion. And because with the eyes of compassion, Boaz not only saw the fear that Ruth was feeling, he felt with her the fear that she was feeling in her aloneness, in her isolation, in her fear. He felt her fear because he was able to have compassion on her. He knew, he knew what it was like He knew what it was like. Somehow he knew what it was like to be alone, isolated, and afraid so he could have compassion on Ruth. And so as Ruth looks into the eyes of Boaz, she saw the eyes of compassion, and she knew Boaz understands. And she knew that she would find what she said she'd find in verse 2, I'll find grace, and she found grace. 
or another word, mercy. She found mercy, and she told Naomi that. She said, I'm going to go find those eyes, and those eyes are going to result in mercy. And so Boaz, he shows Ruth this mercy, all because Boaz had felt aloneness, isolation, and fear, and was willing to open his heart to feel what she was feeling. That's the picture That's the picture of Boaz looking at Ruth with those eyes of compassion. And when we look at that, we can see in Boaz the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not broken, and it just makes them feel all the more broken and feel out of the way because they're trapped in a routine of sin. And so when Boaz looks at Ruth and her situation, Boaz sees a person that's broken in her aloneness and her isolation and her fear. And as Boaz looks at Ruth, he sees a Moabite in a strange country among a strange people. And Boaz sees in Ruth a person who was out of the way compared to the rest of the Jewish people. And he was able to have compassion on her. And when the Lord Jesus Christ looked at us, when he saw us like Ruth, he saw us in our weakness. He saw us in our brokenness. He saw us in our aloneness, in our isolation, our fear. He's able to have compassion Why was the Lord Jesus Christ able to have compassion on us? Because of the rest of the verse in Hebrews 5.2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? See, the Lord Jesus Christ could have compassion on us because he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Just like we are compassed with infirmity, he encompassed himself with infirmity. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought that God Almighty would empty himself of all of his power to be weak like us. Those words are so dramatic when it says, he himself also. He himself emphasizes to us the surprise of it all, to see God himself becoming a man like us in weakness. And the word also emphasizes his goal, his purpose in becoming a man. He has, God, wanted to step all the steps down the staircase till he was like us. The Lord Jesus Christ could not feel like he was there until he was there. And I can't really feel what you're going through unless I've been there also. To what level did he step down? The last part of the verse, compassed with infirmity. That's a description of you and me. You and me, you and I, we are compassed with infirmity. The Greek word compassed, parakime, it means to be surrounded with, completely surrounded with. We are completely surrounded with weakness. All around us is weakness. He encompassed himself with weakness. He was like us, weak and faint with hunger. He was weak and faint with fatigue. He was weak and faint with thirst only without sin. He felt the pull of temptation, only unlike us, he always resisted it. He always resisted those temptations and never sinned, but it wore him out. And those resistances fatigued him. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to surround himself in our weaknesses, but he chose to. Why? So that he could have compassion on us. There was a day in his life when he was near the Sea of Galilee And there were great multitudes of people, and they came to him, and we read all about it in Matthew 15, verses 30 through 31, 
where it says that great multitudes came unto him, having with them those who were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be made whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. That was quite a day. That was quite a day when people heard, Jesus is there, he's healing, he's healing the sick. And all of a sudden, crowds are beginning to form, and they're running to their friends and their family, and they're saying, Jesus is healing, come on. And we can see them going to the sick and their disabled friends and their family and saying, hurry up, this is your chance to be healed. And we can see them going to the blind, take my hand, I'll lead you to him. And we can see them going to the dumb, come with me, I'll take you to him. And we can see him going to the maim, hold on, I'll carry you to him. And we can see him go to the ones with cancer, with tuberculosis, with leprosy, and saying, come. And you can really feel the excitement of the verse that when they came to Jesus, that they threw the people down at Jesus' feet. And now it was a long day. In fact, it wasn't just a day. It stretched out to three days. And there's no food service carts going around. And everyone's starting to get just a little hungry. And because in all the excitement before coming to Jesus, no one said, let's pack some food. No one said, well, it might be a long time out there. We need to pack something to eat and a drink. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew that. And he looked on the multitudes with their hunger, and he looked at them with his eyes of compassion, and he felt their hunger. And when it says in Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. See, he said he had compassion on their hunger. He had compassion on their feeling of faintness because he had been hungry and faint like them. He had been that way before. He was sent by God the Father into the world to be like Boaz and have eyes of compassion. So as soon as he began his ministry, his public ministry, John baptizes him in Matthew chapter 3. And what happens? God immediately sends him into a preparation course. And the preparation course, you take away the chapter division between chapter 3 and chapter 4, and you see it clearly as you read these words. Jesus, when he was baptized, Matthew three sixteen till chapter 4, verse 2. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. See the word then at the start of verse 1 of chapter 4. It means that as soon as he starts his public ministry, emerging from the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God takes him by the hand and says, come on, we're going here. We're going to go here. This is your preparation course. You're not going to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. You're going to be hungry. Why? So he could gain the eyes of compassion from having been where we are when we're hungry. Because by that experience in the wilderness, he would be prepared to have the compassion that is spoken of in Matthew 15, 32. And Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. See, when he looked on the multitude, he not only saw their hunger and that they were on the edge of fainting, he felt that hunger. He felt 
what it like to be on the edge of fainting because he had been hungry like that in the wilderness before. And that's what gave him what Boaz had, eyes of compassion. And he had been so hungry in the past, he knew what it was like to almost faint. How was God able to know firsthand what it's like to faint in the way? Because he surrounded himself with weakness of getting faint from lack of food so he could one day look on the multitude of the Sea of Galilee and have eaten for three days and say, I have compassion. I know just how you feel. I feel with them right now because I have felt that same hunger and that same faintness that they're feeling right now. And he didn't just surround himself in our weaknesses just to feel our hunger and our faintness with no food, but he went on then to feed those 4,000 men with just seven loaves of bread and a few pieces of fishes. And so he surrounds himself with our weakness so that he can also not just know how we feel, but so that he could also defeat our greatest enemy and accomplish our greatest deliverance. And this is in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for that he himself has suffered being tempted. He's able to succor them also that are tempted. Our greatest enemy, the devil. We're no match for the devil. We are no match at all for the devil. We can't defeat him. Our greatest bondage, death. And not having our sins reconciled. In order for us as men to have our greatest enemy destroyed, death, we needed a man to destroy the devil. Just as Israel stood paralyzed before their greatest enemy, Goliath, they needed a David to be their hero and defeat Goliath. We needed a David, our hero, to defeat our enemy, our spiritual Goliath. Our David hero was the Lord Jesus Christ. He partook of the same flesh, the same blood as you and me, so that like David, our Lord Jesus could step out from among us as our fighter. And when David stepped out of the people of Israel to fight with Goliath, Goliath mocked David. And he said to him in 1 Samuel 17, 42 through 44, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He's but a youth and ruddy, fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And just as Goliath mocked David for his young appearance and weakness of a youth, so the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, they mocked him for his young age when they said to him in John 8, 57, then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? They mocked him for his birth by the Holy Spirit when they said in John 8, 41, we be not born of fornication, illegitimate. We have one father, even God. They mocked him for his family and his poverty 
in Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of David, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They mocked him for his hometown, John 1, 46. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? He, they mocked him for the region he lived in, John 7, 52. Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. But even though he was mocked, when he partook of flesh and blood and became like you and I, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out from among us, our hero David, and destroyed our Goliath, the devil. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Come meet Pam Tebow, Tim Tebow's mom, on Friday, August 4th and Saturday, August 5th at the Educate for Life Homeschool Conference presented by the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Pam Tebow will be speaking on homeschooling her five children, including Tim Tebow, and will worship with the musician and singer Michael Sanchez from The Voice and hear from special speakers Kevin Conover from Educate for Life, Pat Roy, formerly of Jonathan Park, and CEO Tom Cannon, president of the First Creation Museum and Friendship with God Bible radio teacher. Cost for the event is only $15 per day, and enjoy a Chick-fil-A lunch and fellowship with other homeschoolers. So invite your friends and register today for the Educate for Life Homeschool Conference with Pam Tebow at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California, on Friday, August 4th and Saturday, August 5th. Call us at 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or visit creationsd.org. That's creationsd.org. 